This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Okay, here we go once again. Welcome to the program for this uh, Thursday, January the 25th. Good afternoon. Good morning. If you're listening live. Good evening, depending on when and where you're listening to your podcast. Thanks for being aboard today. Coming up on today's program, and we're going to park a lot of time initially to talk about Steve Steos and that Ottawa Senator's presser uh, that you may or may not have heard about 90 minutes ago. Uh, Ian Mendez stops by in a couple of moments from The Athletic um, to talk about Steos and the future of the Ottawa Senators and a really good job, a really good job of pumping up a player before a trade deadline. Almost one would say a masterclass in how to do it from Steve Steos. That's coming up in a couple of moments. Uh, Eric Engel stops by at the bottom of the hour to talk about the uh, Montreal Canadiens. You know, one of the questions I have about the Habs um, revolves around rebuilds and revolves around fans' tolerance for rebuilds and organizations' tolerance for rebuilds. Like, at a certain point, fans sort of push back and say, okay, we were cool when we said rebuild and we're tearing it down and we're going with kids and here come the prospects. And then the losses pile up and the season futilities pile up and where once was, you know, inspiration and where once was excitement about something new, the new shiny toy, the new shiny franchise you know, rebuilds don't happen overnight, especially not the way that the Montreal Canadiens are doing them, and certainly not the way that Arizona Coyotes have been doing them since um, 10 years now. Eric Engel stops by at the uh, bottom of hour one. Kevin Woodley. Kevin Woodley's coming up in hour two. So you read him at NHL.com. Uh, he's the editor of In Goal Magazine. Um, the Goalie Whisperer, trademark Elliot Friedman. That's what Elliot calls him. You know, there's a couple of different places we go and we talk about net mining, Steve Ellicott and ClearSight Analytics. That's up around the top of the list as well. Uh, but I love talking about Woodley. And I'll, I'll be honest with you. We'll talk about this with Kevin to kick off hour two. Might be a lot of fun. Um, and I've texted, uh, I've texted him too. I'm saying like, look, dude, hit me hard. Um, whenever I talk about goaltenders on this show, or wherever, whenever I talk about goaltenders on the podcast, or wherever I talk about goaltenders, I'm always thinking, <laughs> rightly or wrongly, in the back of my head, if Kevin Woodley is listening to this, what is he thinking? How much is he rolling his eyes back? How much is he resisting firing off a you idiot text to me? And I have got those from Kevin Woodley, by the way. So the question I have for Kevin Woodley today coming up in hour two is, Kevin, who listens to this program and always contributes, he'll be sending me texts every now and then, what have I gotten wrong? Like, what have I totally whiffed on? You know, there's an old saying in our industry, if you're not sure of something, say it loud. And you've probably heard me do that a number of different times on this program. But what have I been totally wrong about? What have I been, how about this one? Kevin, what have I been loud and wrong about? How about that? We'll start the conversation with Woodley there in hour two and see where we go. And the other day on the program, and we'll finish up with... uh, on the program today with a gentleman by the name of Per Mars, who you probably know by now. He's the founder of Mars Blade and his um, skate holder technology specifically used by a number of NHLers. The other day on the show, just randomly, we started talking about skates and skate technology and lifts and tucks and all these types of things. And I threw it there. You know, we should probably do more with equipment on this show since we try to be as thorough and as 360 about hockey on this program as we can. And the feedback just from throw, one throwaway sentence was, was pretty good. So we're going to start doing more with equipment here on the program. Not every day. 
uh, maybe not every week, but more of a, a now and now and then kind of thing. And we'll kick it off today uh, with Per Mars, one of the more interesting and innovative people uh, you will meet when it comes to skate technology. Uh, in the meantime, I want to go over uh, what happened last night specifically with the Vancouver St. Louis game, because for the second time in two nights, Two non-calls, and I hate doing this to officials, and if you know me, I don't do this to officials, but here we go. For the second time in two nights, a non-call led to the game-winning goal in overtime. You know, two nights ago, it was Jan Ruda who turned into the one-man pick machine, two against Zabanajad and one against Alexi Lafreniere. Next thing you know, San Jose Sharks have just beaten the New York Rangers in overtime. Hurdle with the goal. Ruda with the picks and ends up with an assist as well. And then last night, the cross-check from behind, the Braden Shen on Elias Pettersson, which leads to the game-winning goal. Pettersson stands up and says, what happened? What what happened? Well, it was a cross-check from behind, and that led to the game-winning goal. And I understand the temptation of an official to, you know, not let a call affect the outcome of the game, but the counter to that is always... Well, if you ignore penalties, specifically in overtime where you want to free up as much ice as possible, you're taking a three-on-three and turning it into a three-on-two at that moment when those infractions are occurring, and that is pretty much as automatic a goal as you're going to find in the NHL. We'll pick up that conversation in a couple of moments. Want to get to Ian Mendez from The Athletic, uh, our good friend who has uh, a lot to chew on, a lot to think about, a lot to write about uh, and process after the Steve Steos press conference today in the nation's capital. Uh, Ian Mendez joins me now. Ian, how are you today? Hey, Jeff. Uh, doing great. And yeah, <laughs> never a dull moment covering the Senators, right? I I, I, I got to tell you, look, uh, just, uh, just as an aside, and you know, it's always... It always feels like uh, you're taking a shot at the previous GM when you compliment the new GM on something. And this is not intended as a shot at Pierre Dorian. The one thing, though, that I really do like about Steve Steos, and I'm curious how this resonates with you and how this resonates with fans of the Ottawa Senators, is there is a real calm and calm and direct presence about Steve Steos. He has a focus, he has a direction, and he's very calm and reserved and deliberate about all of it. How does that go over in Ottawa with Sens fans? Well, it's a, it's a complete, and, and I will draw the comparison to his predecessor and Pierre Dorian, because I think, Jeff, <laughs> okay. you think back, and I'm, I'm happy to do it, because listen, I'm in the market, and I feel like I, you know, I got a good sense of both men and the way that they sort of conduct yeah. themselves. And if you think about Pierre Dorian, um, he almost became meme-worthy, right, if I can use that term, where, uh, you know, he would, yeah. comments he would make, or you think about even, uh, and I think it was at Craft Hockeyville with Dave Amber, right, uh, David Amber, and, and, and David yep. asked him about, and, and there was a lo- long pause, and it's, we're a team, and, um, you know, it, it just became like, it was a meme. It was a meme every time he spoke, and you listen to Steve Steos, and you're right, it's, there's a calmness, there's a polished nature to him, uh, he's very and guarded is not the right word, but like he's he's careful and and I don't think that that was an adjective I would use with Pierre Dorian. He was sometimes he would give you uh, maybe too his stuff was maybe too truthful uh, and again headline grabbing and sort of that type of thing. So this is a 180 from the delivery perspective of of general manager to general manager. And I think in in the 15 minutes with Steve Stales today, I don't think there's one soundbite or clip you would run to tweet, post, 
whatever, and, and, and all of a yeah. sudden everyone is, is analyzing it. And I think that, unfortunately, that became sort of the hallmark of Pierre Dorian press conferences in, in, in the last five, six years. The, the, the one thing, and listen, we all understand the nature of short attention spans and we all understand the nature of sound bites and quick hits and, and memes, uh, to your point as well. The one thing that I, that I didn't like about that Kraft Hockeyville uh, with Amber and with Pierre Dorian too is it cut it off right after he said, like the, the meme went out and it cut off right after he paused and said, we're a team. And it, it doesn't go on to, you know, show that, you know, his explanation for that answer. It's just like that, aha, gotcha, let's throw it out there and, you know, all have a whack at the Dorian pinata. That was, and I understand it, like, that's the nature of the game and we all signed up for it and, uh, you know, haha, have a, have a laugh with the Ottawa general manager. But the, the interesting thing about that I found today, there was one moment where I felt that, and I want to get to Patrick Waugh and the team and the coaching and, and all that, but there was one moment where I really felt that, Steve Steos really shone as a general manager. And it was a question, you know, that you guys have been talking to uh, talking to Steos about trade deadline, etc. And I can't recall, I apologize, Ian, who brought up Vlad Tarasenko's name and, you know, what's happening there. And he said, you know, there have been no conversation with Vlad Tarasenko. We know he's an impending unrestricted free agent. And then he went on to talk glowingly about the two-way game and a wonderful person and great team player and Stanley Cup champion. Like, he was creating a public resume and almost like polishing a player up for trade deadline in a very veteran way. Like, when he started to go into that rap about Vlad Tarasenko, did you not think, okay, here we go, shine up the guy for deadline? Well, and it was, uh, and I asked him the question because I thought, the two, the, the two players okay. I asked him about separately were Tarasenko and Chikrin because I feel like there's been the most buzz around those two guys. Yes. And, and you're right. Like, he, he fielded the question in a manner in which it, it certainly left the door open to, like, if they're going to trade him or whatever it is. But he, 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 he spoke very glowingly of him. And, and, and I, I'm curious how this plays out with Tarasenko because, again, like, the tricky thing on, for Steos is, like, he didn't sign him, right? Like, like we don't know... Like, yeah. if Steve Stales was sitting in that chair in J- July, would he have signed Tarasenko? Would he have done it for one year? Like, that's, that's the part that I'm curious yeah. to know. Like, like he, didn't, he didn't sign any of these guys. So it was, a, it was a really good answer. Same with Chikrin, like, where he basically said, hey, um, if I was a general manager of another team, I'd be phoning Ottawa, too, about Jacob Chikrin. And so, like, like he, he basically made it very clear that, at least for now, he's not actively shopping Jacob Chikrin. Uh, and and it doesn't sound like he's had a conversation. Remember, Tarasenko has a no-move clause, which means it's all well and fine to talk yeah. about uh, Tarasenko, but until he says, okay, I'm willing to go, and I'm willing to go here or there, it's really a moot point. So I don't think we've reached that point with, at least publicly, he hasn't admitted that he's reached that point with Tarasenko. Mm-hmm. The uh, I want to dovetail that with your other question um, about Jacob Trickren, and he talked about how you know disappointed he was that his name is out there, and he came really close to blasting other general managers for sort of you know talking about the conversation. Like he was like right up to the. I mean, you've been part of so many of these, Ian. Like, you know what I'm talking about. He came yeah. really close to getting to the. I'm disappointed in my fellow general managers for betraying yeah, yeah. the confidence of a conf. He didn't quite go there. But he, like Ian, he went right to the line, and we we're all ready for him to take that next step into. I'm very disappointed in my colleagues at this position around the NHL for for betraying private conversations. Yeah, and you know, and I think, and I got some time with Jacob Shikrin this week, Jeff, in Montreal, just one on one, 
where, yep. you know, I kind of went to him and asked him about being in the rumor mill. And, like, and Jacob understands. Look, he understands he's got a year and a bit left on his deal. He understands that the team is underperformed. He yeah. understands why he might be a trade chip. What he doesn't like, and he wanted to make very clear to me, and I, you know, I hope this came across, and I, I hope it comes across here, is Jacob doesn't like the idea that people have suggested that he doesn't like it in Ottawa, that he wants out. And, mm-hmm. and you know, he, he was telling me, Jeff, he bought a house here. He said, I didn't rent, I bought a house. He's like, I live five minutes from my sister. It's a 10-minute drive to my grandpa. He's like, I can't tell you what this means to me personally. I love it here. I love right. playing here now. If we don't continue to win and, you know, stuff like that, I get it. I understand why it wouldn't be a fit, but he loves it here. Um, It really feels like Jacob Chikrin is not a priority for the trade deadline. If I had to read the tea leaves, it feels like if they're going to do anything with Chikrin, they could extend him after July 1st. They could obviously trade him too. It feels like that's the time to do it versus now at the trade deadline. I don't know if somebody completely blows you away with a deal thinking – that they could get two playoff runs out of Jacob Chikrin and it's worth it to them. Because remember, he's only making 4.6, which is a really um, palatable number, I think, for a lot of teams. But, oh, yeah. but I, I don't think yeah. that he seems like a priority listening to Steos, talking to Chikrin. Doesn't feel like that's a, the, the, a front burner issue right now. You know, one of the things, I'm talking to Ian Mendez from The Athletic on the Steve Steos press conference earlier on today. Uh, I don't want to get to Patrick Waugh with you in a couple of seconds here because that was an interesting report. Um, I don't think it was a surprising one, but nonetheless interesting. Uh, one of the things that raised my eyebrows, and maybe it should have and maybe it shouldn't have, Ian, I'll, I'll let you decide. Um, when Steos talked about how they're still evaluating the core you know, I've been under the impression that they've identified and, you know, have decided that this is the core of the team and this is who we're going forward with and these are the untouchables and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What did you do with the idea of Steos talking about we're still, you know, in the process of evaluating our core? Well, I don't, like, here's the issue, Jeff. I don't think, like, let's say even if they play well down the stretch and they, you know, they finish with yeah. a, above 500 points percentage from here to the end of the year, they're still going to maybe only be like an 80-point team, right? Maybe maybe 85 at the most. Yeah. But that, I don't know that you can just sit here and just say, we're going to run it back with this group. Because now, now you're talking about seven consecutive years of missing the playoffs, three or four kind of with this same group. I don't think that that's, un- that's acceptable to anybody. So, uh, like, when he talks about yeah. potentially, and I'm not saying detonating the core. Like, if you're asking me, I think Stutzler is untouchable. I think Sanderson's untouchable. Yeah. I think Brady is untouchable. You get beyond that, yeah. I think there's a conversation to be had maybe about some of the other pieces. And, and, and I just don't think you can finish a season with 80 points and tell your fan base it's all good, we have the right pieces. Because clearly this has been now seven years in a row, like I said, but three or four at least of most of these guys being together and not being able to get into, mm-hmm. into the postseason. Okay, the Patrick Waugh conversation. Um, yeah. uh, it was brought up with uh, with Steve Steos, um, and a lot of this has been couched with the idea of the issue with not being able to bring Patrick Waugh in to the Ottawa Senators was one of timing. How did you see, you know, uh, A, the issue itself, and B, how Steve Steos handled it? Well, and, and the reason why that sort of became a storyline here, Jeff, just to give your listeners a little bit of context, is... Uh, earlier this week, I think it was yesterday, Michael Anlauer did a French-language interview yep. uh, in the Ottawa market where he was asked about Patrick Waugh, and he said, you know, 
it, you know, the timing just didn't work out. And, and, you know, he talked about Patrick being a winner. And you got to remember, like, Michael Ann Lauer absolutely uh, he shed his uh, Habs fandom now but but I think he looked at Patrick <laughs> Waugh with a great oh, yeah. deal of reverence and respect and he knows he's a winner and I think on some level there probably would have been uh, an appetite for him but I do in my heart of hearts yeah. Jeff I believe if they truly wanted Patrick Waugh they would have gone to Patrick Waugh when, when they went to Jacques Martin like if you knew that 100% unequivocally that's our guy then they, I think they would have gone to him. I, I really do. I still think this gets down to the bottom line is they never wanted to fire DJ Smith. That was never in the cards. That was never in the plan. And so when that all kind of fell off a cliff, I think their, their internal discussions as a group, Steve Stales, Mike Andlauer, and then they brought, obviously brought Dave Poulin in, is um, let's just calm this thing down. Let's just all take a deep breath. Let's just rush into Patrick Wallace. Let's just rush into whoever else, Barube or whoever. Jacques Martin can settle this down from here to the end of the season. We can take a collective deep breath. We can analyze the roster, and then we can uh, make a decision on the coach. And I think what Mike Anlauer was talking about yesterday in, in the timing not working out, yeah. I think if Patrick Waugh was available in May, let's say, uh, April or May, and they were ready to make their assessment, I think that way it might have been a time where they'd say, okay, um, let's do it. But, but Steve made it pretty clear if we're reading between the lines, say, Jeff, I think Jacques Martin ends mm-hmm. the season as the coach. I really do. And, and I don't think he's the coach yep. next year. I think they find their, their guy in the offseason. You know, we keep hearing the name John Gruden, who's with AHL Toronto. Uh, I think that, you know, the the organization is very warm. I don't know whether it's for a head coaching position, assistant coaching position. I don't know. But uh, the name Jay McKee uh, is out there as well. You're closer to it. How do you read the coaching tea leaves for Ottawa? Yeah, and obviously both of those guys, Gruden and McKee, have been in the Steos and Lauer orbit in the past, yes. right? And and so that's why there's yep. a natural connection there. And 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 you know, a lot of people are wondering with with Gruden in particular, uh, you know, would he be able to like was Ottawa not able to sort of pry him out uh, midseason? And and Steos did say today that you know basically at the end of the season is when you know maybe there might be more candidates available. Now I don't know if I'm reading him saying that that's him saying you know then we can get permission to speak to a guy like that or if that's him saying you know at the end of the year what if certain coaches that are right. coaching now are available but he did kind of allude to the fact that maybe the the, the the pool of candidates will be a little bit better in the spring and so um i like here's the thing on, on like and i'm going to bring up craig barube's name only because i know um i know like yep. dave Poole, for example played with with barube in washington in philly there's a familiarity there. Like, so I, I would think that they would think highly of Barube. And I think when you, when you look at the coaching situation, Jeff, if you brought Craig Barube into Ottawa, uh, I don't think you would need to sell him to the fan base. I think the fan base would say, that's a guy who won a cup in St. Louis in 2019. He got the best out of the group. He, yeah. he sort of, he's a disciplinarian. He gets it. If you bring John yeah. Gruden in, I think there's going to, you're going to have to, there's going to be some, uh, PR work that needs to be done, some selling, because the fan base really believes, Jeff, that over the last five, six, seven times that they've hired a coach, that they haven't spent the most money to get the best available candidate. They've done it uh, with uh, finances in mind. And so if you go to John Gruden, um, right. if you, but if you believe he's the right guy, if you're Steve Stales, Dave Poole, and Mike Anlauer, you're like, I believe that's the guy, then you, you don't acquiesce to public pressure. You sign him, you bring him in, yeah. and then you explain to the fans why you think he's the best. But th- th- there is a bit of a PR 
uh, hurdle that they're going to have to clear if they go with Gruden versus a more established coach in this market. Ian, I'm so glad you mentioned Barubi uh, because it gives me a chance to, to unload one of my theories here on you. <laughs> I want to yeah. get your thoughts on it because when we hear the name Craig Barubi with Ottawa, naturally the default is, as you mentioned, Dave Poulin. You know, played together. There's an association there, an affinity there. Dave Poulin has talked openly uh, of how he feels about Craig Barubi, the coach. Like, it all makes sense. But I'll be honest with you. When I hear the name Craig Barubi with Ottawa, my 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 knee jerk or my you know my 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 default setting there doesn't go automatically to Dave Poulin. It goes to Brady Kachuk and yeah. the St. Louis association between Brady's dad and Craig Berube and St. Louis hockey. I know we're all talking about Poulin, but how much if it is Craig Berube and who knows we're getting way ahead of ourselves here. How much is it Kachuk more so than Poulin? No, you know what I. I think it would absolutely, this would be a Steos, Poulin, and to some extent, Ann Lauer call, but I certainly think that they've handed the keys to Steos and Poulin. But I, I do think that there's value in that. I do. I do think that there's value. If, if, if Brady is your guy, and he is, and he's the face of your franchise, mm-hmm. and he's your captain, I, there is something to, like, all of those guys that kind of had the St. Louis ties, that's a really strong hockey community, right? Like, they... They all yep. kind of oh, yeah. they're all real tight, and they all look up to each uh, those guys. And and boy, yeah, like Brady Kachuk, you're not gonna have to sell that guy on Craig Berube, right? Like he knows what like like, no. he, like you know he I, was it Rob was it Rob Thomas uh, Robbie Thomas uh, lived in the Kachuk home right the year of uh, them winning the cup. Correct. And, yes. And uh, you know yep. Brady would have seen that firsthand. He would have known. He would know the backstory and all that of of, of Craig Berube. So I. I do think that, that that would be a factor, but I think if you're asking me who's making the call here on the coach, boy, I, I, I don't think it's yeah. the players. I think it's absolutely it's, it's Steos and Poulin. You're right. Um, Robert Thomas put up uh, the Kachuk boys. They worked out at St. Andrews College uh, for that summer as yeah. well, so you're, you're, you're bang on there. Um, okay, any, before I let you go, anything else that you, you took out of that press conference that you felt that was you know, particularly salient or that you think people should be aware of? Those, those seem to be my, my main points. Anything else from you? Yeah, no, I mean, really, um, if, 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 uh, obviously the, the story that's in the news cycle right now involves the 2018 World Junior Team. And um, Alex Formanton, we know, yeah. is on his way, we believe is on his way back from his Swiss team. And, and you know, I asked Michael Anlauer, oh, sorry, not Michael Anlauer, I asked Steve Stales about, um, you know, and, and it's yeah. tough. As you know, Jeff, like, we are walking a tightrope in the media here. We're not, we're not trying to assume guilt, innocence, anything. So it's a tightrope. And so when you start to ask these questions in the public realm, it's a, it's a tightrope act. And, and I basically just asked him, uh, has there been, he's under your control. He's an RFA. Has there been any conversation yeah. between you and the player or the agent? And Steve basically said, nope, there's been none. Uh, and he sort of directed everything back to the National Hockey League. But, but it, you know, it's, it's become yeah. pretty clear that, you know, Alex Formanton was a restricted free agent for Ottawa. You know, last year at this time, we were wondering, is he going to sign? Is he not going to sign? Well, it's become pretty abundantly clear that there is no talk of him ever uh, coming back in the, in the here and the now. And, 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 again, we'll have to wait and see how everything plays out. But, but Steve, Steve Stales made it very yeah. clear there's been no communication between uh, him and, uh, and the players' camp. 
And, and I think you're right. I think anyone who's asked about this from any NHL team, whether it's New Jersey, whether it's Calgary, as we just saw with the, with the Ottawa Senators as well, I think everybody is going to defer to the NHL. So that is a that's a question for the National Hockey League. You know, much like you know uh, Steve Stavos was asked about the Arena Project, he said, "Look, this yeah. that's a Michael Landlauer question. That's not a Steve." And I think every manager, whether it's you know Tom Fitzgerald or Craig Conroy or whomever, they're going to say. That's an NHL question. That's not a, that that that's not one for me to answer. But again, like during the whole press conference, good on you for asking that question. I think it's a salient one. I think it's one that has to be uh, has to be asked, and the issue needs to stay at the forefront. So, Ian, bravo again for asking the right questions, and bravo again. Thank you so much as always for stopping by, pal. You be good. Yeah, you as well. Love joining your show. Thanks for having me. There he is, the great Ian Mendez from The Athletic, um, thumb on the pulse uh, with the Ottawa Senators. And, and that was a pretty pretty interesting press conference. Like, I, I think Ottawa Senators fans, in, in, in a lot of ways, are, are lucky to have someone like Steve Stales, even though he is a rookie general manager. And I'm sure there's going to be some, some hiccups along the way. That happens with anyone who's, who's new in the position. Um, but we've been hearing about you know, the potential for Steve Stales uh, becoming a general manager for for a while now, and I can recall around the time that Anaheim was doing their search, you know, one of the names that that popped out early um, was Steve Steos, and you know the feeling around. Ultimately, of course, it goes to Pat Verbeek, but you know the feeling around the NHL was one day this guy is going to be uh, a general manager. And when he joined the Edmonton Oilers last year, I think we all said, "Okay, he's going to be in Edmonton." Unless Michael Ann Lauer gets the Ottawa Senators. And even though it took a little while for him to get to the Ottawa Senators, that was one that you saw coming a mile away. Um, so interesting press conference from Steve Steos earlier on today. Uh, a couple of things before we get to Eric Engels at the bottom of the hour. And we thank uh, Ian Mendez for stopping by. Uh, to talk about that presser in the nation's capital. Uh, Elliot is off today on this program. He returns tomorrow. Uh, Elliot and I will do another podcast later on this afternoon and tonight. That'll be out tomorrow morning. Uh, just a couple of things that I want to that I want to mention. Um, yesterday's L.A. Buffalo game. Uh, did you stay up to watch that one? You, uh, I really hope that you did. Uh, not because it was a great game. It wasn't. It was. It was a tough game on the eyes, and it was a tough game on the ears. <laughs> if you're if you're in the LA Kings dressing room afterwards, um, you know a lot of players did not mince words at all. Most notably, Drew Doughty. So you got to remember here. So last night, and LA by the way got booed off the ice yesterday. So LA goes up in this one three to one, and some questionable goals allowed by Devin Levi, and that situation continues to play itself out. Does he belong in Rochester? Should he be up with the big club? Does he need a long stint in the minors? Uh, or is he good to go in the NHL coming right out of college? A conversation maybe for Kevin Woodley in hour or two, but we've had it before. So LA goes up 3-1 to one against the Buffalo Sabres. It's on, say, Kopitar night as well, a big celebration. Um, number one in games played, uh, assists, uh, his 400th goal, uh, second all-time in franchise-wise. It was just a big celebration for Anse Kopitar before the game. Daryl Evans is all dressed up for Kopitar night, looking all great. This is all about the Kings and Kopitar, and things are going great early. And, you know, they're firing balloons through Devin Levi, and everything's coming up, L.A., and then the second period starts, and the Buffalo Sabres score four unanswered goals. Levi turns it around. It wasn't the prettiest game to watch, but again, the Los Angeles Kings come out and play one period of hockey. 
This has been the story of the last however many games for L.A., and now they've lost 12 of 14, and now they're going on the road. Uh, I don't know that there's an appetite right now to change coaches, but Rob Blake and the entire L.A. Kings brass are watching things slip away. You know that team that we raved about at the beginning of the season and that first line that we raved about at the beginning of the season and that goaltending that we raved about at the beginning of the season? Kaiser Sose is gone. It is a totally different team that you're seeing and Kings fans know it and that's why there was a serenade of booze as the team left the ice to head out on their road trip after the game. Like, who do you want to talk to after a game like that? It's probably the same guy you want to talk to after every Los Angeles Kings game, and that's Drew Doughty. And Drew Doughty, in true Drew Doughty fashion, did not mince words. Have a listen. I think we got guys in this room who are too worried about themselves and worried about their points and worried about stuff like that. We get a 3-1 lead tonight. And, you know, guys start thinking it's a, it's a cookie night and we stop playing the way we know how to play, have an awful second period, and then aren't much better in the third. Uh, it's about the team. It's not about yourself. You guys on this team will need to realize that. Through this whole stretch of games, every game has been relatively close. Does, does this feel like maybe the bottom out for you guys with how the second and the third went? I mean, honestly, it's felt like the bottom out for a while now. Um, it's frustrating not getting these wins. We're trying to stay positive. We're trying to you know, get back to having fun out there and play our game. But uh, it's hard to do that when you're on a streak like this. And uh, this is this has been a struggle for us. And the only way we're going to get out of it is if we get everybody's 100% effort and everyone playing for the team and for each other. Cookie night. We go up 3-1 to one and there's some guys who thinks it's cookie night. Now, I think we all have an idea or maybe a guess who Drew Doughty was talking about. Here's head coach Todd McClellan before we had a break here at the bottom of the hour. This is uh, this is Todd McClellan after a disastrous 5-3 loss to the Sabres. And uh, he starts off by talking about Kopitar and Doughty and you know, saying they, they don't deserve all the blame and how the team is playing stupid hockey, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I'll let Todd McClellan tell it. Pretty good assessment. I thought it started very loose. Uh, track meet going both ways, and then I... A lot of swings felt very different period to period. What was your, your overall takeaway from that? Pretty good assessment. I thought it started very loose. Uh, track meet going both ways, and then I, about the 10-minute mark of the first, I thought we took over and started to solidify the game. Um, and then a couple of mistakes, and all of a sudden we're down 2 nothing. And uh, from there we had good sustained attack time didn't get much of a reward and then made another mistake and it's internet but um should be able to win a game scoring three right now and we weren't able to do it tonight not able to do it that's todd mcclellan uh head coach of the los angeles kings there is trouble there other end of north america other side rather real quick uh i'm not going to be, uh, be able to actually we'll get to the clip um if you're a fan of cheering for people and not cheering for teams really hard not to cheer for Ilya Samsonov right now and another big performance by him last night and maybe the sequence of the week for a goaltender and we'll get woodley's thoughts on this at the top of the hour two on oh that is the longest two on oh sequence i maybe i've ever seen 
It's in the second period. It's Morgan Barron and Adam Lowry come down on a two-on-zero, and you'd think that there was nobody else in the arena. Certainly nobody else on the ice. Like they had how many chances to pass the puck back and forth? How many chances to take shots? How many saves did Samsonov make? It was fantastic. Great pad saves by Ilya Samsonov, and a standing ovation from Maple Leafs fans because of it. It was if you cheer for people and not necessarily cheer for teams, despite how the fact that you may hate the Maple Leafs, and I know a lot of people do, you had to be really happy for Ilya Samsonov. Here he is after the game with Sean McKenzie. Multiple times tonight, the crowd was chanting Sammy. How does that feel? It's unbelievable, you know, like I almost cry what time I listen to this. You know, like it's just really important for me, really big moment for me, you know, like it's huge. Almost cried. It was so amazing as the Maple Leafs fans chanted, Sammy, I feel good for someone who can who can pull it back together after experiencing the lowest of lows um, as a netminder and getting sent to, uh, to AHL Toronto. Uh, okay, we'll hit a break on that one. As mentioned, so they come Kevin Woodley coming up, Pair Mars as well, but joining me next from uh, Sportsnet.ca talking about the Montreal Canadiens. He's the one and only Eric Engels from Sportsnet.ca. Across the Sportsnet radio network and Sportsnet 360, it's the Merrick Show. Wherever you get your podcasts, that's where you can find this program. Back in a moment. Fresh views on everything in the National Football League. It's the Fan Checkdown with Matt Marchese and Donovan Bennett. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. You know who is the gift that keeps on giving? Patrick Waugh. Christmas morning when he was announced as the head coach of the New York Islanders. And in Patrick Waugh's third game in his return to the NHL, his New York Islanders face off against the Czechs notes. Hmm, Montreal Canadiens. Nothing exciting there. I'm sure people will be very level-headed about it tonight. At the Bell Center, joining me for comments on this one and the halves, uh, the one and only Eric Engels from Sportsnet.ca. Um, Eric, first of all, thanks so much as always for stopping by. And, and two, um, from your perch as well, is Patrick Waugh the gift that keeps on giving? Absolutely. Even when he wasn't coaching in the NHL for the last <laughs> seven years. I mean, especially in these parts where fans were lobbying him for, his, for him to be the GM, to be the coach. Um, yeah, He's back. I don't think he should have waited seven years to be back because I think he's a pure winner. And I think even, you know, with a kind of rocky slide in Colorado, pardon the pun, um, you know, he, he paid his dues. And I, I think the most interesting thing, like, I I know you read what I wrote on Sunday, Jeff, I I was on my way home to Montreal and uh, right away it was like, I called our, our bosses and was like, I think, I think we better get to New York. And they were like, absolutely. And rebooked everything. I didn't sleep. I took the train and just listening to Patrick speak to reporters who were on site before the game, you know, it would be so easy to be cynical and be like, this guy hasn't changed. He still is an egomaniac. And he has been humbled. He, he has been humbled by everything that's happened over the last seven years and how long it took him to get back here. And you could just tell after the game when I asked him, you know, how much do you love this, the passion that came out of him, that's why he was hired. He hasn't lost himself in the process. And I think it was really exciting to see him in New York, and it's going to be super exciting to see him in Montreal tonight. You know, we can all recall when the um, when the Montreal Canadiens positions were available. I don't think it was any coincidence that that was the time where Patrick Waugh went on his, what shall we call it, charm offensive? 
Like, all of a sudden, it was, oh, let bygones be bygones about 95. Oh, everything's fine. I can make fun of it now. And I'm a different person. It was more media appearances. And it was like, it was, it was, I don't want to say it was pretty obvious, but it's pretty obvious what, what Patrick Waugh um, what was trying to do here. Do you think when the, when the Canadian jobs uh, weren't available to him or they went to other people, was there a part of you that thought that was Patrick Waugh's last shot at getting back in the NHL? No, I, I thought eventually someone might take a chance. I mean, here's a guy, especially when you look at what he did last year, right? Like completely reinvesting yeah. himself in coaching and winning the Memorial Cup with Quebec. Uh, and then finally, you know, leaving the team in, in other hands and saying, okay, you know, like, uh, it's hard to say. Like, when I look back at those times, I was thinking he was a perfectly valid candidate, but not necessarily the one who would take over from Bergevin. Uh, from a coaching perspective, I thought there was a lot of validity in considering him as a candidate to take over for Dominic Ducharme. Nobody saw Martin St. Louis coming unless they were named, True. you know, Jeff Gordon and Kent Hughes and a couple of other people who might have known about those relationships. But, you know, some part of me felt like one day or another, this guy's going to get another crack at it and he's probably going to make good on it. And it's a pretty, pretty great opportunity, albeit with a flawed roster and, and a team that has seen a lot of negative trends in their game recently but he's already ha- i know they're one and one but he's already having an effect with new york yeah you know i always tell people when they um when we talk about the things that you have to do as a hockey fan like there are certain things where i mean everyone has boxes they want to check places they want to go things they want to see uh got to go to the hockey hall of fame got to go to a stanley cup final have to go to an all-star weekend there's as a, as a fan there are some things you have to do and top of my list is always Everybody needs to have the Saturday night, 701, Bell Center, lights go down, Coldplay hits, all of it, the, the goosebumps, the ghost of the old forum, and, and all that stuff. Uh, I always talk about that. Like This is something that just has to be experienced. You can, I, I, I try to describe it. I can't. I fail. You just have to experience it. Like There is nothing like being in Montreal for a big hockey moment. There's, there's no other market that compares. What is it going to be like? tonight with Patrick Waugh behind the bench, not with the Montreal Canadiens, albeit, but on the opposite side. Well, it's beside the Montreal bench, but still, you know what I'm saying here. Like, what's it going to be like in that building tonight with Patrick Waugh there? Or at least a few minutes, memorable. I, Marty St. Louis put it pretty well, saying, you know, it's going to feel like a Saturday night. And he, he recently said a couple of weeks ago that for the opposition, every night at the Bell Center is Saturday night. For the Canadian, Saturday night is something a little different. And, you know, a couple of weeks ago when I asked Marty, uh, you know, how to put that in perspective, standing on the bench, he uh, came back with the best quote I've heard in a, in a long time, which was that uh, if it was his last day on the planet and, and I had asked him what he'd want to be doing, yeah. he'd want to be at the Bell Center on a Saturday night. And then he looked at me and said, is that, is that good? And I said, yeah, it's, that's about as good of an answer as, uh, <laughs> as he could have provided uh, and moved on to the next subject. But like, yeah, like there's a few experiences around the league that are memorable. Uh, the first time you hear the anthems in Chicago at United Center, that is, an experience that every hockey fan should should relish uh coming to the bell center and i could just put it this way jeff i've i've worked there for the last 16 years and i you know certainly grew up in the city going there after the forum and, and it was really special going to the forum um it never gets old like it doesn't get tired it, it is the best market to work in bar none in my opinion but i guess there's some bias in there 
but it's but it's understandable. I mean, it, it, certainly if you're a fan of hockey history, as you are, there's one place you want to be, and that is certainly Montreal. As I always say, tongue-in-cheek people, you know, there's no such thing as the original six. There's an original one, and that's the Montreal Canadiens. Everybody else is an expansion team. Like um, I put it, I give put us it your snapshot. You, like, I, I, I'm sorry <laughs> to cut you off, but I, I, put, I put it this way to you. Like, on any given night, when the story on the ice could be one that I don't really feel like writing about, the crowd will still usually offer something that will keep the page full, you know? Like, that is that yeah. is unique, I think, to the Bell Center. That's an excellent way to put it. Um, how would you give us a snapshot of this team right now? Give us the, the snapshot of the Habs right now. I'm going to ask you about the fans and how they feel about where the rebuild is at right now and certain players, but give us your take on the Habs two-day, Jan 2-5, uh, 12.45 Eastern on a Thursday afternoon. Uh, like classic kind of mid-season lull symptoms, uh, even for a team that obviously doesn't have you know grandiose expectations either externally or, or internally. They know where they're at. They're in phase two of a rebuild uh, just past the infancy stage, and they know that there will be hard times here and there, but you put together three losses where they allow 19 goals and only score seven, and um, looking for a big bounce back after, you know, they were down 5-4 to the Bruins going to the third period last Saturday. And then all of a sudden it was 9-4 uh, and, and come out not flat against the Senators. I, I, like, it's so easy to look at it and be like, oh, the effort's not there. Like, you knew how badly the yeah. Canadians wanted to get the taste of that ugly loss out. But they're a little rocked by it and a little fragile. And a few key mistakes at bad times rocks them back a little further. And it's just that... It's that time of year where every team, no matter their circumstances, is searching for a little jolt of energy. Um, and that's why it's kind of fitting that Patrick is coming back and sucking up so much of the oxygen in the room uh, in this particular case because <laughs> sometimes it does. You shouldn't need to look for external factors to be motivated for a game. But that atmosphere, that yeah. charged-up atmosphere, because of that happening, it could play well for the Canadians. You expect that it certainly will play well for New York. Who's been their best player? Oh, Nick Suzuki. Um, followed closely by Mike Matheson, Cole Caulfield. Um, yeah. But Nick Suzuki, like, I just think we've seen an evolution here with this player. I, you know, you expect him to be the best player on any given night. He's handling a... a it would look like a ton of minutes if you weren't looking at five guys in Colorado on a nightly basis, but I don't know. I think he's probably yeah. averaging over 23 without looking at the number, and some nights it's 25, 26. And uh, just what he's done defensively to hear some people we respect in the National Hockey League or in the circle, media circles, putting the word Selkie in the same sentence as Suzuki. Um, I don't know if I'd be voting for him to get it, but it, it does speak to the improvement we've seen in the player. He's earning his contract every, every bit of it and uh, becoming a better player that in years where the Canadians are expected to compete, you could see why they've kind of decided to build their team around him and Caulfield and, and Mike Matheson, obviously is just, you know, people will look at like giveaway stats without realizing like he's on the ice for 26 minutes a night. Like you're, that's, mm -hmm. if you look at the leaders in that category, uh, they're minute eaters, you know? 
Yeah, I, I think somewhere uh, at, at some point we're going to have, you know, Nick Suzuki and a Sulky Trophy. I, you know, I, I do believe that just like I felt, you know, for the past however many years about Nico Heischer. Um, and now that Patrice Bergeron's gone, you know, the field opens itself up a little bit more to maybe a couple of newcomers as well. Like, I, I do agree that, you know, somewhere down the road, we're going to talk about Nick Suzuki and the Sulky Trophy in a very specific way. And I don't think it should come as, uh, as a surprise to anybody. Um, here's someone who grew up, you know, idolizing Patrice Bergeron. Um, here's someone that, you know, was, uh, was upset, you know, at someone else in the, uh, in the Boston Bruins organization with the Providence Bruins wearing the number 37. Like, uh, you can't do that. Like no one in Boston, he was like almost like a personal affront uh, that someone else in Boston, uh, Boston's organization was wearing it, albeit at the American Hockey League level. But I, 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 I mean, he works out and, you know, on the ice with Ryan O'Reilly in the off season. So I, none of this should surprise anybody uh, that if you're picking a trophy to marry Nick Suzuki too. I have, a, I have a gripe about okay. the Selkie. And it's, I have a gripe about Go the Lady it. Bing, too, which I think should, I think oh. I voted for Marc-Andre Fleury a number of times for the Lady Bing. I think a goalie should win it. None, mm-hmm. none ever has. Okay. And uh, when it comes to the Selkie, like the last winger to win it was Yuri Lettinen. Oh, and I know. Going back, that's going back I a know. real long time. And we have a couple in the, the league who you consider to be among the best defensive players, like, Brad Marchand and like never winning that award or never even yep. being considered just because he was playing with Bergeron. Mitch Marner might be the best penalty killing forward in the NHL. Like I, I just think we should consider the wingers a little bit more in that debate. Uh, this is one of my favorite topics. and I'm going to try to make it brief, although I could blather on with you about this for a long time. I'd throw Mark Stone into that conversation as well. But the big one to me, I mean, I think we could also put Miko Koivu in there, but he was a center. But when you look at wingers specifically, um, how Marion Hosa went through an entire career in the NHL and we never had anybody banging any significant drums for him in the Sulky Trophy. You know, if you look at, you know, what goes into a player two-way and all that kind of stuff, I don't know that I saw anyone more deserving who didn't win a Sulky Trophy. This cover, and this includes centers than Marion Hosa. I never saw Marion Hosa flub a pass. You know the old saying, you can't give a good player a bad pass? That means Marion Hosa. I've seen guys throw it in his skates, throw it behind him, all of it. He would never break stride and take every single pass. It was great up and down the wall two ways. He was the safest choice for every coach, and he was a coach's dream because when your best offensive player is also your best defensive player, you never lose a matchup, and that was true every time Marion Hosa was on the ice. I could not agree with you more about wingers. I know the argument is that centers have more responsibility on the ice than wingers do, and that is always sort of thrown on my face when I say more wingers for the Selkie, more wingers for the Selkie, but I still think that there are plenty of wingers in this game and who have been in this Listen, who is the Selkie trophy created for? A winger. Bob Gainey. That's like if right. you go back to the beginning, it was like, geez, Bob Gainey's so good. We have to we have to give Bob Gainey up the name of trophy or come up with a trophy for Bob Gainey. Uh remind me, you're in Montreal. What position did Bob Gainey play? I assure you it wasn't center, ladies and gentlemen. Anyhow, I digress. Um, before before I let you go here, tee up tonight's game. Like there's the Patrick Waugh um, sideshow to all of it, which will be glorious because we all know how everything gets done perfectly in Montreal with things like this. But tee up this game for us, the Islanders and the Montreal Canadiens. As a writer, the storyline I hope for, and I don't hope. I hope nobody takes this wrong. I don't. I don't care at all, one way or the other, who wins the game. But as a writer, the the, mm-hmm. the story that kind of would be the most fun to write 
is Samuel Montembeau playing a phenomenal game in a Canadian's win. You know what I mean? Like yeah. homegrown. Yeah, with Patrick Waugh there. Yeah. Canadian kid watching Patrick Waugh get serenaded yep. and celebrated by oh, the fans. Yeah. And, you yep. know, I don't want to look. Sam Montembeau is not following in Hoa's footsteps, and, and he's not the next Carey Price, but he is the guy who has is the first official kind of starting goalie for a team that's carrying three of them, by the way. But he is, he is the first official starting goalie since Carey Price. Uh, he's absolutely mm-hmm. earned the position that he's in, and he is a part of this rich history of French-Canadian goaltenders. So the story that would be the most fun one to write about tonight is that is like that guy has an unbelievable game, especially coming off one where he allowed eight goals against the Bruins, which most of them weren't his fault. And, and he bounces back on, on Patrick Wadnight at the bell center. So the headline I'm taking away from that is, and I'll tweet this out. Eric Ingalls on the <laughs> Jeff Merrick show says that Sam Montembeau is the next Jacques Plante. Am I, am I correct on that one? Can I go with that? Can I hit send on that one, Eric? Yeah, but you'd be blowing my uh, my story. That was no one will take my suggested headline if you. Yeah, no, seriously. We'll, oh, we'll that's see, awesome. But, but uh, that would be that would be a fun one. I mean, I asked some of the players in Montreal's room this morning, like, for sure. How, how, how do you feel this guy handles the the pressure that he's under as a homegrown kid? You know, with with the history of that position, like, and everyone said the same thing. You know, like he he treats every game like it's whatever, it's the next one, no big deal. And it's, it's led to him becoming a guy that nobody thought he could be when he came to Montreal. And that in itself, whether we get to write about it tonight, is a nice story. I just want to see Montembeau come up with an incredibly gorgeous save on Bo Horvat and the camera c- catch Montembeau winking at him. That, to me, would be perfect. On that, we'll let you go. Eric, always a pleasure. Thanks, pal. You be well. Enjoy the game tonight. Take care, Jeff. See ya. There he is, Eric Angles from Sportsnet.ca. Time now for Line Change, presented by Sports Interaction, your homegrown sportsbook, Bet Local, Matt Marchese. Uh, we got the Blackhawks at the Oilers. Jeff, we have the rare minus two and a half puck line tonight Oof. as the Oilers are favored, the Woof. very rare minus two and a half. Uh, I've seen as yeah. low as minus 600 to win. That is not great odds uh, if you are betting a lot of money. Uh, Edmonton has won 14 straight, as we know. Only three away from tying the NHL record yeah. set by the 92-93 Penguins. Interesting on this streak, we talked a lot about the Oilers not allowing a lot of goals, but on this streak, goal scoring has shown how they've won games too. Uh, they've scored four or more in eight of 14 games, so they scored three or less in six of the 14 games. It's been pretty incredible, that balance. They've won four of the last five against the Blackhawks, and the under has hit in eight straight Oilers games and nine of the last 12 Blackhawks games. This is going to be a fascinating four games if we get there. You know, I was on with Jason Gregory yesterday, and, you know, towards the end of the conversation, we are wondering, you know, it's Chicago tonight, okay? You always got to wonder about trap games. Like, to your point, like, this one this one should be, like, skating downhill for the Edmonton Oilers. You have Chicago and then Nashville. Edmonton has always owned Nashville, but there's a sorrows factor. Then there's a break, Edmonton comes back. You always worry about a break and what that could do. They play against the Vegas Golden Knights, and if they win that, then they tie the record, and then they face off against the Anaheim Ducks. How close can they get, and can they get there? The next four games for the Edmonton Oilers will be fascinating, but you got to get past the Chicago Blackhawks, who at last check had more money spent off the ice than on the ice. But that's why they play the game. 
That was Line Change, presented by Sports Interaction, your homegrown sportsbook, Bet Local. What have I got wrong about goalies? Kevin Woodley from In Goal Magazine and NHL.com tells me next. And Pear Mars from Marsblade Equipment Talk coming up in Hour 2. Across the Sportsnet Radio Network, the Jeff Merrick Show, back in a moment. depth conversations covering the Leafs, Jays, Raptors, and the NFL. The J.D. Bunkin Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Okay, a couple of notes from around the NHL. Just talking to Matt Marchese a couple of seconds ago about the Edmonton Oilers looking to stretch their winning streak to 15 as they face off against the Chicago Blackhawks this evening. Also, the uh, Calgary Flames will face off against the Columbus Blue Jackets. Eric Francis on Twitter X reporting significant buzz around the Dome as it appears Oliver Shillington will return to the lineup tonight. That is fantastic news that once again, like we talked about with Ilya Samsonov, or Samsonov rather, in the first hour, sorry, old habits die hard. Uh, In the first hour, you don't necessarily have to cheer just for teams, folks. Uh, You're more than allowed to cheer for people. Uh, Great news for Oliver Shillington there. Uh, Some tough news for Nick Bonino, uh, Arthur Staple, um, reporting that the Rangers will be placing Nick Bonino on waivers this afternoon. So that is... Uh, the latest from around the NHL. And now, here to tell me why I'm wrong, where I'm wrong, and how I can correct myself, knowing how much I love talking about goaltending, here's Kevin Woodley from In Goal Magazine and NHL.com to tell me what I have so wrong it's not even funny and maybe even bordering on embarrassing. How are you today, Kevin? <laughs> I'm good, but I, I would never tell you you're wrong. And you know, now that you're an In Goal Magazine subscriber, that you, you have the place to go. If you're ever in doubt to get your information about what makes us weird goalies tick. You know, I keep telling, you know, um, goalie parents as well um, at the various ranks, like if you're a goalie, mom or dad, uh, do your son or daughter a huge favor and get the sub. Like I knew it was great, but like, you want to talk about going down like wormholes and like not escaping. Like I used to go down when hockey DB first launched, I would spend hours, hours, just snakes and ladders and going through, you know, this guy played with that guy and that guy played with this guy in this league. And I do the same thing with in goal magazine, just, you know, surfing all the articles and the, uh, and the discussions and the interviews and the on ice and all of it. So again, PSA here for me, if you are a goalie parent, you owe it uh, to your uh, to your kid to get a subscription in goal. It's if you want to learn about goaltending at a whole different level, and like it's really opened my eyes to a whole different way to look at goaltenders. And now I notice things like post play, for example, and how it's done differently by various goaltenders and instructed by various you know goaltending coaches. Uh, it's fantastic. Um, so well, there you go. That's my PSA of the day. If you're a goalie I've- parent, get this mag for your kids. I appreciate it. You know, like the, the the example to me, though, that I think is the best is when the goalies actually tell us what they're seeing, right? When we do the pro reads and we all loved Connor Hellebuck's yeah. dad and, and his moment in the spotlight talking about a yeah. 10 or 11-year-old Connor looking at the sticks. Well, you know, we actually, and, and that just shows me, it's a great example of the degree to which some of these guys study the game, study their opposition, you know, stick blades, curves, all that goes into reading the game and an example of a guy like connor like we've got him breaking down video of saves and you start to see how some of those insights 
play into his decisions on the ice and his reads on the ice. And so it is, it is a world that I don't think anybody else opens up goalies to. And uh, so grateful that guys like Connor Hellebuck and Thatcher Demko and Lena Salmark in the best of the game sit down and break down video with us so that young goalies can understand, you know, like all the information that these guys gather in real time with 10 bodies flying around them trying to find a puck. It's like mushroom clouds go off every time I do one of these video sessions. And so to get to share that with kids is uh, just been yeah. fantastic. Okay. So there's like the breaking down the nuts and bolts. And then there's like, there's the, the, the emotion of sports. Like I've always maintained, maybe you've heard me blather on about this before, Kevin. Like I always, I've always maintained that sports occupies a weird place inside our bodies. And there's, like, it's, it's, it's right in between what your head knows and your heart feels. Like, right in that middle spot, that's sports. Like, your head will tell you something, but your heart will say, but this is a great story, and this is good, and this is magic. And I, I feel that this is, in a lot of ways, this is the fight between analytics and eyeballs, right? Everybody loves the story. And no one wants to think, no one wants to think that everything is sort of run by, you know, ones and zeros and, you know, run by numbers. And that's the way you should make your decisions. You know, oh, it's just make decisions based on how you feel and your gut feeling where people that have been around the game for a long time and studied these things and are more sophisticated will tell you, you really do need to follow the numbers for a lot of these things. And that's how you measure the game. So having said that, there is the head, there is the heart, and in between right now coming off of last night is Ilya Samsonov. How did A, you feel about that performance, B, what did you think about that performance, and C, is that the longest any goaltender has had to face a 2-on-0 in the history of the NHL? I was going to say NHL, non-beer league edition, right? Because that's a nightly occurrence for those of us that uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. fly, our tra- fly our trade for some cold suds afterwards. Um, yeah. Listen, like I always say this, and I've said this to I've said this to a few guys over the years. Um, in the media, we don't cheer for teams, um, but I will cheer for a good story and a good person. Uh, and I think the fact that Samsonov wears his heart on his sleeve makes us that much more emotionally invested. Uh, in his success, both in Seattle the other night, and then you know he talked last night post game about the the emotion of of hearing the crowd chant his name and all those things. And I'll go one further. You don't like forget forget the numbers, not the analytics about where his season is because we all know mm-hmm. it's been it's been not good. Um, but to me, it's more like he's always been capable of this. He showed it last year. It's the reliance on that emotion is what would make me hesitant even if he were to go on a heater now for the rest of the season to invest long-term, there is a sliding scale. And you've heard me talk about this before every sort of different skill set in the position, there's a sliding scale and every goalie has a different mix of those skills. Um, And one of those scales is sort of technique to feel and rhythm, right? Like where are you on that scale? And I think everything we've seen, and you don't need analytics to tell you this, like everything we've seen about the way he plays and some of the ups and downs in his performance tells us that as much as that emotion makes for a great story post-game, if you're relying on the vibes, for lack of a better term, of a visit from dad or the crowd chanting your name <laughs> to have success, as opposed to having yeah. a technical foundation that you go back to when things aren't going well, like consistent to but, me, technique but, is not an end-all be-all. But if you don't have it, if it is erratic, 
it's a foundation. It's it provides consistency. And so I think when you rely more on the feel end of that scale and less on the technical side, you're more prone to ups and downs. And I think you can see that in his game over the past couple of years, as much as emotion, every goalie relies on rhythm and timing and feel, um, but to varying degrees. Yeah. And he relies more on it. The foundation isn't as strong. And so you see these ups and downs. I can still cheer for the ups, but you have to be cognizant of the yeah. downs and I don't need numbers to tell me they're coming. But what about that stat that I seem to only have in my head, which, uh, which is called magic. <laughs> What about that stat, Kevin Woodley? I love watching right. <laughs> watching the game. Dude, I'm like, okay, this is the magic stat. And it's so good. Like, like and he's got that skill, right? Like, you <laughs> see the skill, like the two-on-o. You see the flippers kick out yeah. and the and staying deep so and the good. reactive element. Pinball. all those. Like you pinball. can feel good about that. It, exactly. You can't, like, cheer for it. Enjoy it. Um, it's a show. <laughs> it's entertainment. But understand when you rely yeah. on that, that that athleticism earlier in sequences, it's less repeatable, right? Like that's just sort of the reality. And this isn't yeah. an anti-Ilya Samsonov raid or rant because he was really good for a, most of last season. He showed that consistency. I just I wonder, mm -hmm. you know, I wonder a little bit about the work rate to 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 get to the point where your technical game is so sound that you're not as reliant as he seems to be on some of those field elements. Okay, I'm calling an audible here because I just got a text from an NHL e-bug who submits this. You should ask Kevin, what exactly has Johnny Quick done to change if he has changed much of anything since last year? Haven't studied it deeply. Uh, have watched him a handful of times. And I will say, like, you asked, you asked me at the top, like, what did you get wrong? You were joking. We were joking back and forth in text messages. I said, Devin Levi. Um, Jonathan Quick is one that yeah. I got wrong. Uh, you know, um, the end in L.A., even in Vegas, when you look at and, and Sean Burke is a Benoit Allaire disciple, Allaire, the goalie coach with the Rangers, you know, so he would have preached similar messages to Benoit Allaire. And by the time Vegas got into the playoffs, they were looking, you know, like they had options to go to Jonathan Quick and they instead went to, you know, a handful of other guys ahead of him. So I worried about this, especially for a team in New York that had got a lot of good starts out of Yaroslav Halak down the stretch. Uh, and I wondered if this might be a bad move. I'm so happy for Jonathan Quick that it's worked out so well because I know in talking to him what it means to go play for the team he grew up cheering for in Connecticut. What I can see, and this is surface level, not a deep dive, is a goalie who was already starting to try and be more conservative in his positioning, maybe just sticking to that a little more often. Like the amount of times that I've seen him outside of the crease and even when he is it's just heels on the edge what we call heels out like there's not as much dramatic um movement because you're not coming from as aggressive positions and the one thing about Benoit Lair's sort of system or style that I don't think gets talked about we always think of Henrik Lundqvist and that goal line out approach we think of more conservative positioning as being depth mm -hmm. relative to the goal line it's east-west, too. It's always having your inside skate inside what they call their lines, which is sort of if you were to take the posts and project them straight up the ice, making sure you always have some something inside that lines on your, on your inside edge so you're not painting outside the line, so to speak, laterally as well as aggressively up top. And so, like, he's always had the talent. He's always had the skill. Maybe it's the workload is less and a reset over the summer. But I do see him maybe being... As much as they dialed it back already in LA, maybe even more so slightly positionally conservative. And then he still has the ability, like that sort of back of the leg scorpion save he pulled out the like that's the fun stuff, right? That's Ilya yeah. Samson up on a two on oh, and you're just like, Yes, like give me more of that. But the reality is if <laughs> you magic. put yourself in a Yeah, that's the magic. But if you put yourself in a position 
where you need the magic too often, things don't tend to go right. well as a goaltender. Okay, so let's do this conversation then. <clears throat> let's pretend this is the uh, the beginning of the interview, the beginning of the conversation. Uh, the last 12 minutes didn't exist. Kevin Woodley, welcome to the program. What do I have wrong about goaltenders? Um, it's not your fault, but sometimes I hear you guys talking about roster save percentage and guys having bad seasons. I heard it earlier in the year about Jacob Barksham. Frankly, he's having a Vesna caliber season. That's how good he's been and how bad the environment's been. His expected is 874. Not your fault. You don't know that. You don't have access to clear side analytics. Uh, I used to ignore to the point where I don't even include it in stories, goals against average. I'm damn near there on save percentage, Jeff. Like it's, it's without the context of what the environment is. I don't even look at it anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, Marc-Andre Fleury. I've heard that similarly as, as he be, starts to become a discussion point around potential trade deadline stuff. I've heard talk of his, I think his save percentage might even be sub 900 right now. Well, his adjusted, uh, especially since the coaching change is closer to like plus 1.8 plus 2%, which puts him top 15 in the league. Is he win, is it winning Vesna trophies with that? Is he a world beater with that? No, but it certainly is like top 15 in the league is a hell of a lot different than, oh, he's sub 900. He's struggling. Like since the coaching change, since they've dialed things in a little bit defensively, you know, another guy that I think early in the season and even actually after the coaching change, the nature of being a backup sometimes gives you some of the tough starts. And that's where we can see even on the same team, mm -hmm. wild swings in expected results based on how the team plays in front of you. Because you're getting... You're getting the crap burgers. You're getting the second end of back-to-backs. You're getting the the teams that are loaded and coming. Yeah. You know they're gonna you know shove it down your throat. And you know without the tools to sort of um, evaluate that relative to the shot quality they see, I think even raw save percentage can can be quite misleading. So there's a guy where you know people are like ah is Flurry still any good? Um, yeah, actually, and the numbers mm -hmm. say it. Okay, so let, let me let me circle back to that because I'm fascinated with this because. I can't remember when it was, but somewhere along the way, we stumbled across the realization that goals against average is not a goalie stat. It's a team stat. And then we all turn to save percentage and aha, this is where we need to be. Knowing full well that as hockey compares itself to something like baseball uh, who is light year, or soccer, who are light years ahead of how they measure the game. The NHL is still very much lagging behind. It is starting to catch up now. I think NHL Edge is a wonderful beginning to this, uh, but still, we're still light years away of catching up with a lot of other sports. What is then if save percentage now is, I mean, you say save percentage as if you're spitting the word save percentage. You're not actually saying save percentage. Save percentage, Kevin Woodley spit, period. Right. Um, cringe. So what is it good for then? What cringe, yeah. yeah, cringe. What is save percentage good for then right now? I know that clear. Listen, I want to make something perfectly clear here. ClearSight Analytics, even just a little bit that I know about it, and bless you, Steve Valaket, that is the Cadillac of measuring goaltending performance and you're right like unless you have a subscription to it like a lot of a lot of the way that that Valaket and his group measures goaltending performance is lost to us but that is much along the same lines of whenever I talk to someone with an NHL team who either heads the analytics department or is part of the analytics department, I always get things like, you know what? You spend too much time talking about expected goals. We're past that. Like the, the stuff that we're working with is years ahead of what the public models are saying. So when you hear save percentage, what do you think? And what, if anything, is it even good for in 2024? 
Well, I mean, listen, like it's better than goals against average. We'll give it that, right? Like everything is layers of context. <laughs> and the reality of Valaket's yeah. um, ClearSight analytics is that they just add the most context to shot quality. And I would add the caveat um, that I use it for goaltending, but it's not just like you can flip it. He has all the players too. Who's creating these chances that lead to goals, right? And why is, you know, like, mm. so we can, you can break that down in so many different ways and he's got a full list of player stats, but I'm just a dumb goalie. So I focus on the goalies. Um, you can, you can do a lot of different things with these numbers. It's hard, right? Like I'll do radio hits uh, in different markets across the country. And the, the exercise to me is, when somebody brings up, there's times where I've been like, hey, like so-and-so's got a 900 save percentage. Uh, he's really struggling. And I'll literally be like, oh, like I hadn't even looked at it. Um, I hadn't even looked at the raw numbers. I've just been paying attention to the adjusted because I, I believe so much in that context being, otherwise I'm comparing apples to oranges, right? And so it, it, for me, having two has helped open my eyes that like the standard, especially at a time when when save percentage keeps going down, the raw numbers uh, around the league as teams yep. recognize that throwing 99 percenters from the point at a goalie does nothing but pad those stats and make him feel good about his game. At least most teams, um, you know, it's being able to compare those two. So, so we have some extremes, right? Like save percentage still helps for the most part. But it's it's in the extremes uh, that I think you find the best examples. And Markstrom, with an expected of 874, having one of the best seasons in the NHL when the raw numbers don't indicate it, that's one of the extremes, right? Like they haven't been as good defensively as we mm. anticipated. Changed some things in their own end in terms of how they defend and sort of giving up different types of chances and more of them. And that's natural because we go back to Hellebuck and the way goalies read plays. It's not just about... What hand is this shooter? Uh, has he opened his hips for for a shot or has he closed his blade for a pass? All these little details that they can read. The one thing I get most out of these goalies that has sort of shocked me over the years is how much their decision in terms of depth, uh, save selection, is dependent on what their teammates are doing and being able to read off defensemen and can they trust or do they know this guy is going to do it this way, the way the system dictates. It's a massive part of the game. And so... Um, We'll never be able to filter that into analytics, what's supposed to happen and how a goalie reads off of that. But the more context we can have, the better. And so, you know, like I I guess at the end of the day, it's kind of sucks because I get to come on here and talk about all these numbers and not everybody has access to it. And that's not fair. But I guess in the small times that we get to chat, I get to I can try and educate uh, some people on some of those extremes, hopefully, and and why this different context matters and why when you go to get a goalie at the trade deadline, boy, you better pay attention to what they're actually good at within these micro stats and figure out whether that's what you give up. Otherwise, you could end up picking up a goaltender who, yeah, he's a quote unquote good goaltender, but he might not necessarily fit what your team gives up and you might not give him his best off. It's like calling up the calling up the skill player and plunking them on the fourth line. Like if you're not careful, you can make a decision like that with goaltending yep. at the trade deadline. So what you're saying is attention NHL, cut a deal with Steve Valaket and make these private numbers public ASAP. So we all have a common frame of reference. So you mentioned I'm two for two on shameless plugs. From... <laughs> That's okay. Um, uh, you, you mentioned that uh, Jacob Markstrom is having a Vesna type Vesna trophy type season. Um, and listen, if anyone's going to, you know, think about making a trade for Jacob Markstrom, I don't think that's a secret to the Calgary Flames and Craig Conroy and their group. It will take a lot to get Markstrom out of Calgary. But here becomes the question. 
based on the numbers that you have access to, based on the information, rather, that you have access to right now, who's good? Who's good in the NHL? Who should we be paying attention to and saying, sure, the save percentage is this, but crumple that up and throw it in the, in the, in the trash bin. This is what's really happening. Kevin Woodley, who's actually good? Oh, I mean, Connor Hellebuck continues to be great. Um, Thatcher Demko's first six of the season, six weeks of the season, Jeff, were historically great. Has it leveled off a bit since then? Of course it has, because nobody maintains what he did for the first six weeks. At the end of the day, it still grades out, you know, on sort of cumulative numbers in the same neighborhood as, and slightly, uh, you know, goal saved, slightly better than just barely above Markstrom, who's second, slightly above Connor Hellebuck. Like those are the guys that right now are sort of, you know, my top guys in that Vesna conversation. I know it's a tough sell for Markstrom. You know, some of the other guys that, you know, don't maybe have the minutes or the recognition, like in Toronto, Joseph Wall is good. Like he's good. Um, adjusted save percentage is one of the best in the NHL uh, in, in the sample before he got hurt. Um, you know, he was playing himself into that conversation on the cumulative numbers as well. I think he's still top 15 and goal saved above expected. Uh, you know, that's one that maybe people don't recognize. And I'm a little biased because I've got to spend some time with Joseph, uh, including for some pro reads at Ingle Mag that'll be coming out. Uh, and, and like, I see the other side of it. When we talk about goalies doing the work, I love, and I'm biased towards the no stone unturned guys, the guys that are always looking for ways to get better. Uh, and Joseph falls in that yep. category. Sometimes, sometimes it can be a bad thing. Sometimes guys chase change uh, and they they get away from their foundation. But I, you know, I love his game. Uh, other sneaky good guys are having great seasons, like Joey Decord. I think we figured that out by now. He's having a hell of a season. Guys, you might not have like yep. in a backup role. Loren Brassois has been exceptional when the Jets need him. Um, Capo Kakinen has quietly has a really good adjusted save percentage on the season. A name I've thrown out before, Connor Ingram. Charlie Lindgren, two guys that I sort of yeah. had earmarked in past seasons as teams should go get these guys, are both top 10 in adjusted save percentage. Alex Lyon fits the same bill. You know, a guy who bounced around, got the Panthers into the playoffs, was still a free agent, ends up on a team with three goalies, and is outperforming everyone. So, yeah, hey, Stuart Skinner from the start of the season to now, he's had a hell of a turnaround. There's, there's a lot of guys here, but... Um, you know, some of those names I don't know are ones that most people would think of in terms of playing at the top top of the league this season you know when, when i throw them out there and and they have the adjusted numbers at least say they have the the, the arizona goalie conversation um is, is a fascinating one and uh unfortunately we only got a few minutes left here it's much it's, it's worth more time uh than we can afford but let me swing back to edmonton and let me frame it this way one of my favorite mark twain quotes goes like this um and i'll paraphrase twain i don't have this one nailed Perfectly, but here we go. Uh, when I was 16 years old, I thought my father was the stupidest man on the face of the earth. He could teach me nothing. And then when I turned 21, it was remarkable how much my father had learned. When you look at the Edmonton Oilers and you look at Stuart Skinner then and you look at Stuart Skinner now, is it that the goalie has improved or has the team improved around him? Well, both things can be true, but the thing I was screaming at the time of the struggles at the beginning, they were, and this is something we've learned, they were dead last by clear sight in the National Hockey League in five-on-five high-danger expected goals against off the rush. 
second right. in the NHL. Now, two things are true. One, I don't think you can survive in the NHL if you're that bad against the rush. Like everyone I heard at the beginning of the year, oh yeah, you know, they're not great defensively, but could you imagine if the Edmonton Oilers had Thatcher Demko? And I was like, yeah, I saw it last year with Thatcher Demko before he got hurt when mm. the Canucks were that bad off the rush and he was bleeding goals. Like you just, you can't live in that area. I think the difference between the 20s and the 30s in rush chances against is not just 10 spots, it's exponential. And so that's where Stuart Skinner had to live. And since since the coaching change, give them a week grace period, that Eastern Conference trip, they were still making the same mistakes. Since they sort of settled in and got home, number one in the NHL, rush chances, high danger against. From dead last to first in the league, that's mm -hmm. a big part of this. But don't miss how much credit Stuart Skinner deserves for stabilizing his game, for sticking with what he does, not chasing changes as the world was falling apart around him. Like the mental maturity that he has shown last year and this year, the you hear it in the post-game interviews. That's what I love about him. Growth mindset yeah. all the time. Without chasing change, without panic and being like, I have to throw everything out and start over because we can't defend. That's like... We get to see what's going on technically between the pipes. We only get glimpses of what goes on with these guys between the ears. And Stewart gives you glimpses in his mindset. I love the way he managed yeah. all that. And now in a better environment, we're seeing what he can be. Okay, let me, and maybe you've already given us the answer and it's Marc-Andre Fleury or maybe Capo Kakinen in San Jose. But if you're a team, trade deadline's on the horizon, everybody. Again, this is where we turn our attention after All-Star. Uh, if you're a team looking for a goaltender come trade deadline time, where should said team be looking? Well, I mean, if, if you want sort of sleeper picks, like guys that maybe don't jump off the charts, um, household names, now, Anthony Stollers, uh, since mid-November, has a plus plus three yeah. and a half adjust, adjusted save percentage behind an environment that's still below expected. Like his expected save percentage is below the league average and he's outperforming it actually at a level since mid November that nobody else in the league is doing. Um, not a huge sample size at a couple hundred shots since then, but you know, honestly, like it depends what you're looking for, Jeff, but there's certainly a guy that, you know, has outperformed his environment. Dan Vladar after a really slow start, like I know his start scared teams off, but since then, again, the Flames are a tough defensive environment for teams. His expected is 866. So I'm guessing his numbers don't jump mm -hmm. off the chart either. But his expected since mid-November is 866, and he's outperformed at, by 1.7%, which, you know, again, in that Marc-Andre Fleury range, 15th. Are you beating Worlds with that? No. Is it a nice depth option that you might not otherwise consider? Guys like Stolers, uh, Flurry, Vladar, they could certainly fill that role. And obviously with Flurry, you add in the sort of veteran experience element and what he brings to a room. Um, but again, th those are just guys that to me, the adjusted numbers, Jeff, probably paint a more flattering picture than maybe the raw ones do. And, and I still think before you go and acquire any of those guys, you need to do more math, frankly. You need to see what they specifically do well and then match that against what you give up as a team. And then once you've done that, you need to click on the video that comes with the description of every different type of shot and watch how they play it. And again, see if their success and how they play those chances matches how you defend. At the end of the day, numbers are only a tool, but they can certainly, there've been a lot of cases over the years where if you just looked at the numbers, you knew it was gonna be a bad fit um, or it was not a contract worth signing. And more often than not, whether it's the sleepers like Lindgren, mm. Um, or Connor Ingram, or some of the big tickets like, you know, I hate to say it because he's a feel-good guy too, but Jack Campbell, like, this was all predictable based on some of these underlying numbers.
Uh, Kevin, like I like I always say to my beer league goaltender before every game, listen, if you're not going to stop the fourth shot, don't bother with shots one, two, and three. Uh, Kevin, you stop all of them. Uh, thanks, as always, the best beer league goaltender slash goaltending analyst uh, breaking it all down for us here on a regular basis. Thanks, as always, Kev. You be good. I appreciate it. I'm going to hear about this because I suck at beer league, and my team is like, why do they keep calling him an expert? <laughs> you know, the guy that invented the piano wasn't the best pianist, so don't worry. The guy that invented the Rubik's Cube wasn't the best at it either, so don't worry about it, Kevin. This is what makes the world go around. You be well, my friend from Ingold Magazine. You be well. Thanks, Jeff. Kevin Woodley from Ingold Magazine. Uh, man, it is such a fascinating read. Like, seriously, I know I kind of went into sell mode a little bit off the top of the interview there in the conversation, but it is, for anyone that's subscribed to it, it's one of those, like, you don't just read it for a couple of minutes, like park half an hour at least every time you uh, you go deep into, into In Goal Magazine. It's fascinating. Change the way you look at goaltending. Um, okay, so we're going to get into some equipment talk here. We're going to talk about skates, and we're going to talk about skate holders specifically. Um, we're going to talk to Per Mars, who's the creator of the Mars Blade, and also um, skate holder technology, which a number of NHLers are using. Uh, some junior players are using, players around the world are using. We are going to Sweden in moments uh, to talk to the great, one of the most creative people in the equipment industry, Per Mars, as the show continues. Across the Sportsnet Radio Network, simulcast on Sportsnet 360, and wherever you get your podcasts, it's a Merrick show, talking hockey equipment. Next, keep it here. Covering the Raptors in depth like no one else. The Raptor Show with Will Lou. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Welcome back to the program. When you hear the um, the name Marsblade, many of us think of roller hockey technology, and specifically during COVID, where you know that technology, which uh, most replicates uh, the feeling of skating on ice, you know, really helped a lot of people with off ice training or people that wanted to get involved in inline hockey. Um, you know, Marsblade was was the thing to check out. But the thing about Marsblade as well, uh, and we'll welcome Pair Mars to the program here in a second. Um, Marsblade is also involved in uh, ice hockey as well um, with blade holder technology. A number of players in the NHL, whether it's Jack Drury or Brandon Carlo or Michael Backlund or Mackenzie Entwistle in the American League, to say nothing of Flyers first rounder uh, Oliver Bonk with the London Knights, use this technology. And there's been a really interesting study um, that's come out of Brock University and George Brown as well about the efficacy uh, of these skate holders as well. So as we talked earlier in this week about wanting to do more about hockey equipment, thought it'd be a good time to catch up once again uh, with one of the leaders uh, when it comes to innovation uh, in hockey technology. Uh, the great Pear Mars joins me now. Pear, how are you today? Thanks so much for dropping by. I'm um, great. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Uh, the pleasure is mine. So first of all, um, tell us about the the the, the skate uh, the skate holder right now. The the latest ones, the twelves. I want to get to the to the Brock study, but it is it is fascinating the way that um, this technology works, and probably best you know uh, best that you tell it in your words because I'm sure I'll misrepresent it, and I don't want to do that. Uh, tell us about the twelves and what you've come up with here. Yeah, I mean. Uh... 
It's uh, the same technology as used for our office uh, training rollers, uh, low motion technology that uh, gives mm -hmm. you it's a walker between the, the wheels uh, or between the, the steel and the, uh, the boot. Uh, so it's a rocker in the chassis that gives you another dimension of movement that gives you a, uh, a longer stride. Um, more power, uh, better uh, power transfer. Uh, and like you uh, mentioned in, in the study with Brock University, the, it gives you a more efficient stride. Uh, so the steel stays on, on the ice longer. Uh, it gives you a more natural and, and energy efficient movement uh, that yeah, saves you energy, uh, more power, more speed. Mm -hmm. um, yep. T t tell us about that about that study at Brock University. Like, what I mean, you've given us the the broad strokes of of what this has what this has revealed. Uh, give us some of the, the short strokes. Like, what type of information? You know, if I'm looking to buy uh, a, a new a new blade holder, like, what type of information did this study give you? Well, what they were looking at is uh, the the skating uh, efficiency of uh, the players, uh, and they were doing a. Uh, uh, it was a couple of different phases. First, a treadmill uh, test, and then an on-ice test. And yeah. uh, they were looking at how much force the player needed to apply um, in the skate during uh, uh, a set speed at the treadmill. So they could see that the players used uh, a lot less force uh, to maintain the, the same velocity on the, the treadmill, which uh, then translates to uh, yeah. Imp mm -hmm. they could to skating efficiency, so they they used less uh, um, energy. Um, well, yeah, in, on well, the, I'm always I'm always curious about uh, always curious about adjustment periods as well. Like if I'm going from a a traditional skate holder uh, blade holder to this, how much of an adjustment period would there be, or does it seem completely natural? Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, a lot of uh, that's a common question uh, regarding the, the transition time. And uh, since hockey players are very uh, keen to stick what they are used to, um, but uh, mm -hmm. pretty much all players, I would say, are really uh, fascinated of how quickly they adapt. Uh, I mean, it takes, I've heard all the way from like a couple of minutes or a couple of strides even uh, to uh, uh -huh. one or two sessions, maybe. So it's a really uh, uh, quick adaptation time. Uh, we've had a number of pro players switch even mid-season here, so uh, which is, of course, uh, really ex extraordinary. That's rare. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's rare. Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's really rare for someone to switch mid-season as well. I can understand the you know transitioning in the off-season and trying new things. Well, the, the one thing that, and listen, you live in this world, so you know this, but just so our listeners and viewers have an understanding where once upon a time, you know, players would be fixated and fascinated with um, working on their sticks. Like you'd see the blow torches and shaving down blades and things like this at the ring. There was always players working on their sticks. And now it seems more than ever since, you know, sticks would all come factory made into the player's specifics. I mean, all you're going to do is get some, you know, shaft shaving because, you know, they kind of come a little bit sticky and guys want to shave them down now more so than ever. Players are more particular about their skates and they're particular about the boots 
and the blade holders and the blade themselves. I mean, they'll be shuttling, you know, 20, 30 pairs of blades back home for their very specific sharpening to have those, you know, then shuttled back to them. Like, this has become the most important thing for a hockey player, and it's the area that they obsess about the most. In your conversations with hockey players, what are they looking for in their their blade holder technology? What are they looking for in their skates in general? What do you find hockey players most interested in right now? Well, it's a good point. Uh, I mean, just looking back a couple of years, uh, it's been a a very uh, strong... uh, uh, increase in in uh, interest uh, in this area of, of being in the forefront uh, especially the younger generation uh, always looking for the things to improve and and uh, yeah it's uh, for us it's of course a, a great uh, timing now to come in and with our technology and uh, I mean they're always looking to to become yeah, faster and more efficient and uh, uh, improve in, in all areas of, of skating and even uh, of course the s- smallest advantage uh, uh, is huge yeah. for these players because improving a couple of percent in, in training uh, is really it's a lot of training so if your equipment can help you improve uh, like we saw in the study even like five to seven percent is I mean that's uh, yeah. huge of course for, for these guys so for a play, for a player that's enormous you know i i i do i do wonder you know in the off season when players you know try different stick patterns or try different skates or gloves or or anything do you find now that players now understand how to your point that extra four five six whatever seven percent can mean you know the difference between you know 20 goals and 30 goals or you know five million and seven million on a on a contract that players now are more willing to at least try something new in the offseason like i'll be honest with you when you said that players have you know switched mid-season that that kind of stuns me because i know how players get locked in and they worry so much about their performance but do you find the players now more in the offseason are willing you know to call you up and say hey para can you can you send me the uh, the, the blade holder i want to try it here for a few weeks yeah i mean we, we see i mean a strong uh, quick adaptation and quick uh the, the interest has grown a lot. I mean, even just looking back the last year, uh, I mean, like in general, peop- most guys don't want to be the first one out with something new. But uh, now when they start to see that uh, other players, top players, uh, teammates, uh, opponents uh, all over are, are starting to uh, yep. use the, the holders, uh, now they, they it is starting to get a, a quick... Uh, acceptance in the market and in the players locker room and and so if you see your your teammate the the, the first guy on the team wearing them and, and loving them and then all mm-hmm. of a sudden there's another guy uh and then <laughs> there's quickly like oh i have to try them as well so um it's like that it's the of course the best marketing to see uh to have the the players mm-hmm. starting to <laughs> spread the word uh, amongst the the players like that and and uh, e- even though the the most guys don't want to be first one out uh, it's always hard to get the first yeah. guys but then you don't want to get left behind either so it's uh uh yeah it's a, it's a great uh, when you know, the, the word the, starts the- 
the, the, the first player pair, and with uh, Pair Mars, founder of Mars Blade, we're talking about uh, skate holder t- technology um, with Mars Blade. The first player that I noticed was Michael Backlund. Um, was he the first? And then, you know, I can't help notice, you know, watch London Knights and here's the Flyers first rounder bonk. I'm like, oh, hang on a second. There's Mars there. Mars Blade there too with the, uh, with the skate holder. Was, uh, was Michael Backlund the first one? As you mentioned, nobody wants to be the first. Was Backlund the first? And if he wasn't, he was the first one that I noticed, but if he wasn't the first, who was? Yeah, he was uh, amongst the first of the NHL players. So he's been on them for, it's his, uh, third season, I think, uh, Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but uh, so he it was a uh, uh, couple of guys the first year like him uh, Nyquist and um, uh, no sorry he was uh, he was one of the first on our last generation uh, Nicholas Cromwell okay. was the first utilizing our first generation so <laughs> can't forget him uh, he, he was the of first course. but that was on the, the previous generation uh, you know, that, that leads to sort of an, another question. Maybe it's a dumb one because, listen, there are plenty of, like, Brandon Carlo uses it and Michael Backlund, one's a defenseman, one's a forward. Does it make any difference what position the person plays? Like, is there something specific for defensemen that's different from something for forwards, for example? No, that's a good question and something that uh, we get asked a lot. Uh, like, if there's a particular type of player that that uh, benefits from it the most but uh, no it's mm-hmm. it's uh, it helps every player regardless uh, of uh, position or even the level you're at uh, it helps everyone to improve as a skater um, and and that's the the beauty of it just like the the carving ski that we uh, uh, relate to our technology doing like uh, a technology shift uh, so it becomes a new standard right. like the carbon ski in, in alpine skiing helps everyone to ski better and makes it more fun and and our technology mm-hmm. does the same for, for everyone that skates so doesn't matter this has been great um pair thanks so much for taking some time for me today marsblade.com is the website if you want to learn more uh, about the 12 specifically uh, and everything that marsblade has to offer uh the great pair mars one of the most innovative people in the uh in the uh the hockey technology industry parking some time for us today uh pair thanks as always for stopping by much appreciated thanks jeff thanks for having me Mars, uh, Pear Mars, uh, founder of Mars Blade. Uh, if you've tried the inlines, uh, you know that that was some pretty cutting edge technology. And I can recall, you know, during COVID as well, like a lot of players, uh, a lot, many of which, you know, couldn't find ice time, had to do everything, you know, uh, outside or indoors on concrete. You know, the, the Mars Blade was a, was a really revolutionary uh, product uh, as well. So we're going to do more on the, on the program in the coming weeks and months on, on, uh, on hockey technology and, and, and hockey equipment. And I thought talking to Pear, just because he's such a, a different thinker, is probably one of the uh, one of the best places to start. So we thank Pear Mars and everybody from Mars Blade for stopping by and the people at Mars Blade for making him available at whatever time it is right now uh, in Sweden. Uh, Manny Marchese joining me here for the last couple of moments of the show. And, uh, you know, th- this was um, this was an interesting day. Or last night was an interesting day in, in hockey in a lot of ways. And there was a great Samsonov story. And the one thing that I started the program off with that I didn't really get a chance to get into too much, Maddie, was 
You know, what happened last night during that Vancouver Canucks-St. Louis Blues game? First of all, it was a good game. Vancouver, like, looks awesome. Like, Vancouver is just so good. But give it to the Blues. They're right there with Vancouver the, uh, the entire time, um, leading for the majority of the way that the game goes into overtime. And then for the second day in a row, we get a controversial non-call in OT. This one is the Braden Shen cross-check to Elias Patterson in front of Thatcher Demko. Next thing you know, the St. Louis Blues win the game. And everyone in Vancouver is saying, what gives? And I quickly point out that what gives is the same thing that happened the night before in the San Jose New York Ranger game, and that is a non-call in OT uh, led to the end of that game. I can overlook a lot of missed calls at different points of the game and just say, whatever, it's hockey, get over it. It ends up sorting itself out. I'm not going to get too fussed about it. But, Maddie, to me, OT is different because right away you've only got six players on the ice, three aside, and if you take one of them off and turn it into a three-on-two, which essentially is what happened with that, certainly that last Jan Ruda pick two nights ago on um, on uh, Mika Zibanejad, and then last night the cross-check to Elias Pettersson who took him out from defending in front of the net. Like, what you're doing is taking a three-on-three, turning it into a three-on-two, and you know that's pretty much an automatic goal at that point when you get down to three-on-two. Yeah, I, I looked at the play, and I, this is going to be... The people in Vancouver are not going to like this. I thought Elias Pettersson went down a little... You're fine e- with it? I thought he, No, I thought he went down a little easy. Honestly, and when you look at the extension, yeah, when you look at the extension from Braden Shen, I don't think, I mean, I think he meant to get him out of the way, but when it looks like he extends, I think it's because Pedersen went down easier than he thought, which is why the extension looks so much worse. Honestly, I, I, okay. I don't, I hate let cross me, checks in the back, ask, so I will say that, but let me yeah. ask you a question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> let me DM. ask you a question. Um, did, did, did Elias Pedersen, oh, I don't know, have the puck? No, he didn't. I and I and I get that part. <laughs> oh, okay. I get that part. Okay. But, but Jeff, we've seen but you've seen guys go down a little bit easier than maybe you would 100%. have expected. And there, I don't think it was a vicious cross check that in most cases would have warranted a penalty, but when you look at it and look at it over and I've seen it a bunch of times, he kind of falls over and that's why it looks like Braden Shen extends more than I think he was planning to because he was expecting Pedersen to still be on his feet. It doesn't have to be vicious to be I a know. penalty, though. Here's the thing. Were any of those Jan Ruda picks vicious? Did you look at those and go, ooh, vicious pick? No. No. But Now, to your previous point, I think you're bang on about one thing. Like, the last time I checked, gravity was supposed to work the same everywhere. Mm-hmm. But for whatever reason, for hockey players defending... It seems as if gravity is stronger around your own net and it sucks you down that much stronger because these big, strong, rough hockey players that I see all over the ice that don't go down when they're hit, somehow lighter hits can get them down around the net. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the blue paint. What do I know? I just host a little radio show. I'm new to hockey. (laughs) I don't get these types of things. So I understand what you're trying to say. I get it. Like around the net, all of a sudden... Guys tend to go down a little bit lighter, but I come back to the same thing. Elias Pedersen didn't have the puck. Now, is Shen trying to get him out of the way? Yes. But was it a cross-check in the back as well? Yes. Does it have to be vicious to be a penalty? No, it doesn't. And I know here you are quibbling about, oh, it's an overtime penalty, and you know you should have won the game in regulation, blah, 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 blah. Don't cry about it. Cry harder, all those types of things. I get it. But at the end of the day, it's just too overtimes in a row. And I just think that 
that fouls in overtime carry such a consequence to them that as an official, don't you have to be more on top of it? Because you're handing a point over. Like those non-calls, those non-calls in the San Jose Ranger overtime handed the Rangers that extra, handed the Sharks that extra point. And the non-call yesterday in St. Louis, Vancouver handed the Blues the extra point. I, I don't disagree. I mean, in San Jose's case, it's probably a detriment that it handed them an extra point. We could look back on that one and say, Jan Ruda <laughs> should have got a penalty for that. By the way, we are... You, y- Jan Ruda cost us Macklin <laughs> Celebrini. Damn you, oh, Jan Ruda. That's going to be incredible. Before we end the show, somebody <laughs> texted me yesterday asking what the over-under was on yeah. time for you to mention the Vancouver Canucks blue helmets. I should have earlier. I, I, I said them. way under, and I was completely wrong. I'm shocked. I I should have led with that. That's how gorgeous <laughs> they were. Dude, those those Canucks, blue chrome. Oh, those were so nice. Uh, they've done great with their helmet. I love the matte black, and I love what we saw yesterday. We're going to see it one more time as well. It's all in a, for a charitable initiative, Canucks Kids, so that's fantastic. Uh, the helmets look good, and they're going to a great cause as well. Bravo, two thumbs up, Vancouver Canucks on that one. Uh, we got to wrap. Uh, thanks to Paramars, whom you just heard from. Uh, thanks to Kevin Woodley, Eric Engels, Ian Mendez as well. Uh, Matt Marchese, David Sis, Lance Kennedy, and the great, the great, the great, Jen Rolnick, who, as I always mentioned, has the toughest job trying to make me and this set look decent. All right, we got a big night of hockey on the horizon tonight. Back tomorrow in 22 hours. We'll talk about all of it and get you set for the weekend. Hockey, hockey, hockey. We'll talk to you tomorrow.